Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast. My name is Andrew Sola. I'm the host of the Politics Podcast and the producer of all of the podcasts here at the American Centrum Hamburg. This is our 25th and final episode for 2021, but don't worry, we will be releasing many new episodes in 2022. Before we get started today, I'd like to thank the staff and board of the American Centrum for all of their help. Special thanks to the chair of the American Centrum, Laura Langford, and our head governmental liaison, Zara Altman. Without them, the podcast would not be possible. Thanks a lot. Also, I'd like to thank our many partner institutions, especially all of the German-American institutes in Germany, our partner organizations in Chicago, the U.S. Consulate in Hamburg, the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, and, of course, the German Foreign Ministry. Thank you also to the hosts of our American Literature podcasts, Dr. Douglas Cowie of Novel Romantics and Dr. Stephanie Schaefer of Lady Fiction. Of course, thank you to all of our guests whose expertise and collaboration is cherished by us all. Lastly, I'd like to thank all of you, the thousands of listeners in more than 40 countries around the world who have listened to our podcast this year. It's always nice to see that we have listeners in countries that I never thought we could reach, from Chile to Finland and from Canada to Australia. You can look forward to many exciting new podcasts in 2022. As always, we'll be discussing EU and U.S. politics, as well as American culture. But we'll also be highlighting the Chicago-Hamburg Sister City Partnership by exploring the music and literature of Chicago. Lastly, we're producing a special series called Transatlantic Wisdom about the influence of German philosophers on American thought. So stay tuned. Okay, so let's turn to our three topics about the EU in 2022, Fortress Europe, the new German government, and the upcoming presidential elections in France. As always, our expert guest on all things European is Dr. Gunther Donner, recently retired after nearly 30 years working in Brussels on EU health and social policy. Congratulations on your retirement, Gunther. Thank you very much. So our first topic is Fortress Europe. My personal take is that migration politics will be the most important topic in Europe during 2022, even more than the pandemic. And I think that might be a radical statement, but I don't think so. After all, the EU faces immigration pressures on at least four fronts. The first front, there is the normal seasonal migration patterns from Africa and the Middle East into Europe. Unfortunately, migrants are still drowning while attempting to cross the Mediterranean nearly every day. Just this week, three boats sank in Greek waters, leading to the deaths of at least 16 migrants. Second, as we all know, 
The end of the war in Afghanistan is bringing a steady stream of Afghan refugees into Europe, both via legal and less legal paths. Third, we've seen in the news lately that Iraqi and Syrian refugees have been trafficked into Belarus for entry into the EU over the Polish border. Of course, Poland has an external border of the EU. This has led to an armed standoff at, indeed, an external border, which is rather shocking and rather serious. Fourth, something hopefully that doesn't happen, we know that Russian troops have massed on the border with Ukraine, and Vladimir Putin is threatening to invade. An invasion of Ukraine would lead to millions and millions of refugees fleeing west into the EU. So we have these four pressures, and they are profoundly affecting politics and raising many thorny questions. For example, how many refugees should any single EU country accept? Are certain countries, due to geography, more exposed than others? For example, Italy, Spain, and Greece have complained for many years that they have shouldered the burden of migrants, and the rest of the EU is essentially freeloading off of them. And in fact, Italy, Spain, and Greece have a legitimate complaint, and it's proven by statistics. According to the UN High Commissioner on Refugees, more than 116,000 asylum seekers crossed the Mediterranean to reach EU countries in 2021. That's just one route, the Mediterranean Sea Route. Of those 116,000, 55% traveled to Italy, 35% to Spain, and 7% to Greece. So the vast majority of the burden of asylum seekers is going to these three countries, and indeed, these countries bear a refugee burden that Austria, for example, does not. So, the refugee problem is also pushing local and national politicians to become more and more isolationist. So, is the EU slowly but inevitably turning into Fortress Europe, a fortified island of peace and prosperity in a sea of pestilence and poverty? This is obviously a hugely complex topic, so let's try to unpack it by looking at the legal mechanism that allows asylum seekers or refugees to claim asylum in an EU country. That legal mechanism is the so-called Dublin Agreement or Dublin Regulation, of which there are many different ones that have happened in history. So, Gunther, it's a huge question to start with, but can you briefly outline the history of the Dublin Agreement or the Dublin Accord and highlight its important points? With pleasure. It's a long history because there are three, in fact, based on one another. It all started with the first, um, the original Dublin regulation created in Dublin during a European summit in June 1990. That is way back in history. Uh, this thing entered into force seven years later uh, due to legal uh, political processes to be managed in, the, in, in each member state. So it entered into force in, in 97. Even non-EU member states of the period concluded an agreement with the European community, as it was called then, for example, in 2001, Norway and Iceland. So they affiliated themselves to this. 
Dublin two was more minor correction, not not of. Gunter, what what was what was the substance of Dublin one? Well, the substance the substance, in fact, was it has to be regulated if we were to 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 proceed with the idea of the EU as one territory of freedom of movement. It has to be kept apart from the outer world, as you would protect your borders in America. The idea in theory was you could move from Paris to Berlin as easily as from New York to San Francisco uh, without border controls, without all this. So in those days, the idea of a European United States of Europe was still very much uh, a common phrase in Brussels. You don't hear about that much anymore. So the idea was if we were to create the um, freedom of movement within, we have to automatically and logically to protect our external borders. Otherwise, given the, the differences in social, socioeconomic expectations, socioeconomic achievements, possibilities, chances, and, and, and in cash, this would have never worked. You also have to, to, to understand that within the EU proper, such differences were enormous in those days. So we speak about 1990, that was on the brink when, when the uh, Warsaw Pact collapsed. The years from 1990, from then until the Eastern European countries would join the EU more than a decade later, were marked by enormous mi interior migration. And the idea is, of course, if we now were to integrate these countries into the EU system of freedom of movement, this would be a colossal, a colossal work, not to to run the risk of of overburdening single European member states and their rather generous social systems. The question behind why do you restrict immigration are easy. You you would like as as a country, as a society, probably you would like to know who joins us. Who is with us? Where does this person X or Y come from? Will they enter the productive world or will they go right away with into the systems of social welfare and social aid and social protection? If so, if this latter uh, variant were true, you also have to ask the question, how, was, how, how would that be uh, financed? Who's going to pay for this? And um, in order to accept the interior liberties of the EU extended to the East European countries and joining this. And this was a, that, that was the hallmark of the day, uh, integrating those new countries which had suffered under the economically ridiculous rule of communism for decades, were economically extremely weak, had huge social problems, and there was, of course, a huge interest in migration. There were no jobs in Hungary in 1992 when I came there. It was a disaster. So what they were thinking of was, why shouldn't I go abroad and work there? They were welcome, be that as black laborers, be that officially registered laborers. By black laborers, you meant, of course, uh, people who people people yeah. who are not registered and paying taxes, indeed. getting paid in cash. In, indeed. That was a, a huge issue in, in, in those days. And if you look at now... Black labor from Eastern European countries has been reduced considerably due to the fact that they built up social institutions, weak or strong, but they exist. They didn't exist in 1992. What was there was the old communist system, uh, and that's fallen, that had already fallen apart. So that was the idea. We wish to 
enlarge our interior liberties of movement and we have to protect our external borders. That was the, the basic idea. Historically speaking, it's easier to understand what, what we now know under the term of Dublin uh, regulation is Dublin 3. And Dublin 3 stems from 2013, some considerable time later. And this had been Espressis Verbis uh, designed as an instrument determining the responsibility of individual EU member states for the examination of an application for asylum submitted by people looking for international protection. And now, and that is quite interesting in legal terms, under the Geneva Convention and the EU qualification directive within the EU proper. All right. Can you unpack that in normal language? Yes. The Geneva Convention is quite old. It's a convention of the United Nations when and who would have to be regarded as a political refugee deprived of of basic rights of freedom in his or her home country. It was based on the tragic experience, historically speaking, of uh, minorities and social subgroups within the Nazi realm. It later was extended to uh, victims of communist oppression when they came to the West, they were accepted as political refugees because in their home country, uh, the communist system would reduce their civil liberties to nothing or below that. What was unknown in those days, rather unknown as a term, is the, the economic migration. Due to a very simple fact, directly after the war, no country was living in abundance. The idea if I leave this environment and I exchange it for another because it is economically more prosperous, uh, was not that clearly marked as it is today. After the disaster of the the, um, Second World War and the catastrophic destructions it had brought about, European countries, thanks to the American aid, regained prosperity uh, rather quickly and developed very generous systems of social aid, social protection, social social insurance. This was not the case everywhere, and that did not happen at the same speed. Uh, in those days, it was not a dis- not even a topic that people from Africa would migrate in considerable numbers to to countries other than probably their for- former colonial powers. That was a t- topic in Britain. I remember when I was young there. And that was a constant issue in the 60s and before. But the general idea is, well, those are probably responsibilities of the former colonial uh, masters that had to be looked at in a rather bilateral thing. So there was no German angst, so to speak, that people from former British colonies would go to Germany in 1964 to benefit from the uh, already rather developed health cases. Whereas the British Empire, for example, or the British government had Jamaicans, for example, going to Britain, the, the so-called well, Windrush generation. But I, the general point is that the wider imperial powers dealt with their own colonies, mm-hmm. colonial ex-nationals in their own separate way. The Dutch and the the Dutch Indos, for example, is another one that I Indeed. can think of. But but when we're talking now going forward to Dublin today, the Dublin Agreement today, the Dublin Agreement makes a very clear distinction between economic migrants 
and political refugees, correct? Well, not legally. It doesn't even mention the economic migrants. It, it is based on the Geneva Convention, which rules this out. The Geneva Convention is a political uh, individual deprived of basic human rights, threatened probably, threatening his, his or her liberty uh, and welfare. A so-called economic migrant, if we want to describe them as such, coming, say, from Africa today, an African country that is just poor, but in which his or her civil liberties are not violated, in which there is no war, would have no legal standing to claim Not according status. to the Dublin Convention mm -hmm. or the Dublin, Dublin Regulation. Um, the idea is it rules out a master plan, so to speak, what happens if such an individual uh, appears at uh, the border uh, applying for for uh, asylum? And it also re regulates Dublin 3 in particular, approved in June 2013, uh, that the first EU member state where these fingerprints of the individual are stored or the, asi the asylum claim lodged would be responsible. And to, to illustrate how gradually others joined the Dublin scenario, the uh, already mentioned Dublin 2 thing had been joined by non-European countries suffering from the same problem, namely Switzerland, little Switzerland, little Liechtenstein and Norway, and even Denmark, because Denmark, right from the beginning, of, had a very strict, a very strict policy not to be overburdened by by uh, waves of immigration, this small country with its extremely generous welfare system uh, probably couldn't master. So Denmark, that was part of the Danish uh, agreement uh, with the EU. I join you, but I get a certain uh, uh, I get a certain amount of uh, liberty and maneuvering space. Other countries joining you did not. So it's it's still impossible for a non-Danish person to buy property there just as a holiday home. Uh, you can buy property there and become an owner, but you have to move there and live there. The idea is otherwise such a small country bordering mighty Germany uh, with all her money would be bought up for holiday purposes due to the uh, attractive landscape and coastline. Uh, so the, the Danes negotiated within their the negotiating contracts, negotiated a few exceptions. But the other non, the to mention non-EU member states, Liechtenstein and Switzerland, already known as very uh, well-to-do countries with a high standard of living and social welfare, they joined because there would have been no other, no alternative for them what to do. Uh, so they joined the Dublin II thing. And now we have the Dublin Three, and we have that, as we've already discussed, since 19, uh, 2013. Did it come into effect in 2013, or was it negotiated then? It was approved at, in, in, in June 2013 and became valid uh, EU legislation. Okay. Yes. Because the, it, it's, this is, the, due to the process, the, the, it takes very long to negotiate the first, but then you put it on the agenda and you renovate such 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 a regulation. Of course, you need a unanimous vote among member states for such modifications. So that's the reason why you cannot you cannot expect such regulations to be to be uh, modified or, or altered. It's a very complicated process. You need consent of every single member state's parliament. 
there has been much criticism recently uh, of the Dublin uh, 3 uh, regulation, mostly that it it is in the way of a fair and efficient protection due to the um, difficulties imposed on asylum seekers. And the second is the uneven distribution. I think your remarks already focused on that. Yeah, just this year, 55% of the Mediterranean crossings were to Italy, yes. 35 to Spain. Geographically speaking, this comes rather natural. Uh, there is no system that a country with such an, an, an external border, and the external border is now, um, again, has to be defined. Is, is the Italian coastline an external border? Yes and no. Greece has an external border with Turkey, which is a non-EU country, which is very hard to, 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 to survey and to control due to the thousands of islands. Mm -hmm. Italy has no direct external border with a non-EU country, such as Poland now has, but has the problem that due to a new form of human trafficking, mingling with asylum-seeking intentions, uh, now people are transported in very, very uh, dangerous fashions by certain interested power brokers or stakeholders on the system from North Africa across the Mediterranean. This, in 1990, nobody would have foreseen. And this is a new industry that has come into force. So the two big routes, if you look at the first one, very active and very much discussed in 2015 and 16. That was the Balkan route, when migrants from the Near East mostly, whatever country there, be that Iraq, be that Afghanistan or whatever, Syria, they would walk, literally walk from Tur Turkey cross into Bulgaria. Then Bulgaria would have been the first EU country to, to, to enter uh, the Republic of Macedonia would be there. That is still no EU member state. That was a land-based route that then was stopped by building fences and fortifying the borders, not just by the EU countries, but also by the EU countries. Uh, the, the transfer via the Mediterranean requires an organization of skills. So a refugee in, in any given North African place uh, suffering persecution and oppression by his or her government is one thing. The other is people from West Africa would have to travel thousands of miles through a very hostile environment, namely the Sahara Desert, with all its legal pitfalls and risks. This requires organization. This requires organized bribing of border patrols, whatever the many states you have to cross. Uh, until you get to the to the uh, North African Mediterranean coast, where then these poor individuals are either left to themselves or are, will be put on uh, rather uh, unstable, unseaworthy uh, uh, vessels. Unseaworthy vessels. The less seaworthy, the better, because it get, creates a moral commitment for those active above all the Italian navy in the Mediterranean to pick them up and to save them from drowning. What is so shocking and what is so despicable in this whole process is that these individuals, and there is proof of that in all the thousands of interviews uh, EU border control people have done, they have to pay thousands of dollars or euros in hard cash in their home country to undergo all these 
uh, horrible uh, experiences. What we know is how many may have fallen victim to maritime catastrophes in the Mediterranean. What we do not know is how many is how many died in the Sahara, for in example, in the Sahara Desert, were raped, were tortured, were murdered, whatever. There is no journalism there. There is not 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 not. not we don't have stand any chance to to ever find out what happens there. It must be it must be a disaster of, of alarming proportions. Indeed. But why is this working? This is working because as all mafia-based uh, systems, it's a spreading event for, 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 for cash advance. So the border patrol of Sahara country A, B and C that had to be crossed, of course have to be bribed. Otherwise, no, even, uh, even the toughest of human traffickers won't get through. This is clearly beyond the EU scope of regulations. Politicians have tried it. They talk to local politicians and in, in charge in such countries. The wider description you're giving is very much like how the U.S. administration periodically goes down to Honduras or Guatemala and even to Mexico to try to figure out a way of stemming the, the flow of refugees and asylum seekers with mixed results. Sometimes it works for a short period of time, but the seasonal migration patterns remain in Europe as they do mm-hmm. in uh, the United States and Central and South America. But you've identified sort of two issues here. We have the the moral issue, of course, and indeed course. the moral issue is extremely important. These poor people need to somehow find sanctuary, but then we have the legal and political mechanism, which is Dublin Three. I mean, would you say that this is working? Is it functioning well, or should this somehow be revised yet again? And can it even be revised? Because are you really going to get every EU country to agree to anything new? On a political topic as thorny and unfair, as it were, as migration. Well, the thing is, we have the Dublin instrument. Just think for a minute, this would not exist. What would happen? Individual countries would close the borders. Uh, certainly, under political pressure. I mean, the idea that without the Dublin, or everybody would stand clapping hands with new arrivals of refugees is starry-eyed. It's, it's not based on realism. So the idea is you can evolve broadly the Dublin Convention, but how could you do it? The basic principle would have to remain because where the person first touches EU soil, the person has to be identified take a note of fingerprinting and all that. This you cannot you cannot rule out because why would you send them and how would you send them mm-hmm. to, to another country to do this? I think we neglected to mention that clearly, the, the, just to reiterate, the critical point of Dublin is again this. Wherever a refugee or asylum seeker first sets foot on EU sure. soil is the place where he or she has to file for asylum or refugee status. So obviously, if they if they land in Italy, but aren't sort of fingerprinted until they get to, say, uh, Sweden, then there's an issue of why weren't they registered then in Italy and why shouldn't they be sent back to Italy? And how did they make and it what through Sweden? On the way? Yeah. Uh, nobody could control, nobody could whatever. Speaking about it, Italy and Greece, clearly it's, you could add Spain. Countries extremely hit hard during the um, 
earlier years of this migration. And, but still, the EU has never completely forsaken them. The EU has spent hundreds of millions of, of euros to give support to Italy they, and to Greece and to Spain and so on and so forth. Malta and, and, and Cyprus are the same, even islands, though probably a bit more difficult to reach by boat from North Africa. The thing now you deal with is, do we accept that there is a business model behind much of the Mediterranean route, yes or no? So we, we accept that there's this trafficking industry, so what's the point then? What point are you trying to make about well, that? Well, uh, the point is, could we, what could we do to stop it? On spot, and you have to. It's not, it, it's not going to Libya to stop it. You have to stop it in West African countries. How? Uh, difficult to tell. So what you're essentially saying is Dublin. It's far more likely for Dublin not to be revised or developed. It's yeah. far more likely that this could only be managed through, as it were, local aid. And by the U.S. experience, I just let you know if we can make those comparisons again. Those are spotty efforts. But I want to come to the end of our discussion of, of immigration and refugee status by just asking you, in general, do you think that the EU is moving more towards a fortress Europe model? You already said that uh, countries are building walls, fences, especially in the East. I mean, do you, would you predict in 10 to 20 years Fortress Europe will actually exist as a kind of a walled-off, quasi-impenetrable group of states, wealthy states? Let's face it, in a way it already exists. Of course it is a fortress, and there is a huge inherited bureaucracy, even within EU member states, which probably might have to be explained to American listeners. Illegal people in countries like Austria, France, Belgium, Germany or Sweden or Denmark, it's far more difficult for them to survive than in America. Even in America under the most conservative government America has ever put forth, you can move freely, you, you can even send illegal people to school, that is impossible in Germany. Absolutely, you need a Meldbescheinigung, you need a registration document for whatever. Any ticket control on a, on a, on a, on a subway trend could mean the end if you'll stay in Germany if you're an illegal person. The same is true for next to all of the EU member states. Unlike in the US, where if you do cross the border without being captured in the US, then you can basically melt into the community. And as long as you don't run into uh, the wrong type of law enforcement, you can actually live out the rest of your life. Uh, I remember talking with students, German students and Swiss, Swiss students about that these differences. They couldn't understand because they didn't know that an illegal person could live there, could make a driving, like get a driving license, could pay tax. I mean, you couldn't pay tax as an illegal here. They would first ask you for your... Yeah, car insurance, of course. Calif California actually allows illegal immigrants to get car insurance because it's better. <laughs> it's better to allow them to get insurance. It's better for everyone. All, all this is ruled out in, in Europe. And there is one more thing I would like to, to just to, to put forth on the table, and that is the huge socioeconomic cleavages within the EU proper. They are still existing. So there is a continuous and legally sanctioned interior migration. Of course, somebody from Spain or Italy, to a lesser degree, from Greece or from the East European country, 
would rather prefer to live in Germany or Denmark due to the fact that the social system is extremely generous, very involved and all that. And that is perfectly possible. So wherever you are in Romania, you are unemployed, you tell your local registrations office, I now seek for a job in Germany or in Denmark. I moved there and they couldn't stop you. You have your three months, you find your job and you live there. And that is a difference. If you look at the, the socioeconomic level of Germany or Denmark on one side and Bulgaria and Romania on the other, that is about like Mexico and New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And just think for a minute about opening the border from Mexico to, to the US because these people are there and have a right. And that is still working. And that is the, the core issue of European uh, civil liberty, of freedom of movement, and, and, and three others. It's the four basic freedoms of Europe. And without Dublin, that would not exist much longer. We, we do need to end this segment of the show because I do want to talk about the new German government. But I just, I just think it's important to emphasize what you said. The Dublin Agreement solidifies the EU, and there's, there's indeed no way to replace it. The second point that I think I should stress from what you said is just again to remind our listeners that Fortress Europe in some ways is a bureaucratic fortress. You can't just melt into a society because you need to register to do anything, send your kids to school, mm-hmm. get a driver's license, get insurance, all yeah. of that stuff. So this there, it's sort of an invisible bureaucratic fortress that means that most uh, migrants that come need to be registered asylum seekers or refugees rather than economic migrants. And that's the system that exists today. So very good. Okay, so let's move on to the second topic for today. Yes. Auf Wiedersehen, Frau Merkel, guten Tag, Herr Schulz. Mm-hmm. Angela Merkel has retired after her long tenure as chancellor, as we all know. However, her party, the center-right CDU, lost the election. Therefore, a new coalition has been formed, headed by Olaf Scholz of the center-left SPD party. Joining this historical and complex coalition are the Green Party and the Free Democrats. And I just want to explain them just very briefly. The Greens are obviously the party that wants to do everything it can to stop climate change and to develop a so-called green or sustainable economy. I think most Americans and listeners around the world gets the green concept. But the Free Democrats are not really something that has a good parallel in U.S. politics. I would describe them as being fiscally conservative in that they want less government, fewer government regulations, lower taxes, less government bureaucracy, and less red tape. And to that extent, they do seem like fiscally conservative Republicans in the United States. But unlike this group, the Free Democrats are very progressive when it comes to social issues. They don't want to really get involved in culture wars or issues about religion. So in that respect, uh, they lack most of the uh, interest in, in culture wars entirely. So, Gunter, uh, can you just talk a little bit more about this this coalition and maybe just 
pick up uh, two or three key points about what we should look forward to in 2022 with the new coalition government? Well, from the onset, one thing was rather clear that the era of Frau Merkel coming to an end, there would be no repetition or whatever of what we had before. Don't forget, Frau Merkel formed governments with the Social Democrats and with the Liberal parties during her long period in office. And she was a mastermind of forming coalition governments. The idea of a coalition government probably is complete alien to American standards. You would have really opposing parties bitterly bickering with one another during the electoral campaign, but afterwards they would have to sit at the table and do something together. And there is no no alternative, but breaking up your coalition ruins your image, uh, makes you probably makes you the scapegoat for the uh, failure. The huge challenge they have is the pandemic, the fourth wave. Uh, they had to, uh, they have to stand and they have to crush, uh, which probably will not happen, but it might be a fifth. They now discuss compulsory uh, uh, vaccination for the first time in, in politics, which is um, a breakthrough, but it's also a, a legal, uh, a, a massive legal change. So the pandemic will preoccupy their first half year or even the first year in office. Then comes the idea of how to create this uh, sustainable new economy, which is rather vague and by definition. Will it, would it be a realistic approach? Perfect railroad services instead of short, short-term flights and car trips? Or will it be postponed from one session parliament to the other because we wish to, we will cut out nuclear energy in Germany, whereas many others in Europe build new nuclear power plants around us. This is a contradiction that had hitherto not been discussed at the European level. One thing is clear, a European uh, 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 commissioner came up with the idea that nuclear energy would be considered part of the so-called sustainable energy sources. And that to the Green Party is probably very hard to communicate. There are many hidden minefields within it. What they managed, and that deserves respect, is due to the, during the rather um, difficult period of negotiating a, a, a contract for the coalition, very little filtered outside and, and was discussed in the media and public. So they could keep their mouth shut. They had an idea, they had the contract, and now they are in office. Whether or not a year from now we will see much change in climate conversion and how would that look like remains to be seen they will be taken up all the energy by stemming the the pandemic and keeping our, our socially and socio-economically afloat uh, and that is very difficult the foreign policy is another field of contention the green party has been quite radical during the ele electoral campaign with there is room for everyone in germany which the clearly the majority in germany is against you mean it's, they're very, very pro-immigrant, the Greens? They are very pro-immigrant verbally. Whether they are practically pro-immigrant is a different question. Their greatest danger is, and put me, that is probably the final phrase, their greatest danger is they have a, quite a bit of a radicalized base, uh, very much devoted to, their, to, to reaching their political aims, and now they will have, they will, might see their own people in government reducing this to 
uh, consensus points. And consensus is not one of their strongholds, but it's the it's it's of the essence for a coalition government. If you don't have, do not reach a consensus among opposing views, you go you 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 get nowhere. The thing now is: is there an alternative? No, there isn't. Nobody wants to have a new election. The extreme right will benefit from it, so they will have to to move on, difficult or not. Uh, and I guess they will. I do not believe in m- much massive changes. And if you look at the German stock exchange, it's still rather stable. That is a, an early indicator of whether or not a revolution in inverted commas is in the offing. And final point that I'd like you to make, people who've followed European and Russian politics will have heard of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is a pipeline to provide Russian natural gas and the pipeline goes underneath the sea from mm-hmm. western point of Russia to a northern terminal in Germany. This has been very contentious for U.S. administrations. The Republicans mm-hmm. in the U.S. want to actually force Germany and the EU to shut it down, even though it's, I think, fully complete as far as the construction, yeah. even though gas isn't flowing. So this is a pretty big point that affects the U.S. as well. Uh, the criticism of the pipeline is that Vladimir Putin could use this as leverage over Germany specifically and heating and gas costs in general in Europe. And that's why the Biden administration and indeed the Trump administration were against it, although Biden dropped sanctions against uh, the companies mm-hmm. involved in it recently, for which he was criticized by some parties. So uh, the pipeline is done. It has not been turned on. Do you think it might be turned on this year coming up? Yes. You think it will be? I, I will. Indeed, because what is now discussed is a legal uh, is a legal problem that should have been we should have been aware of 10 years ago when we started building this thing. That now the foreign ministry headed by Mrs. Baerbock, the, the green lady, is outspokenly against it. You and you would not hear the same from Herr Scholz. Herr Scholz is he's a, a very predictable political character and, and and he's an old war horse of politics uh, he's been through situations comparable to that for many years and uh, he sees well that is an economic decision to be made not a political decision to be made one thing is clear it's not very realistic to say well now north stream 2 will enlarge our being dependent on mr putin we get all our natural gas from him through poland so you can shut and blackmail with one pipeline, you could do it with two. The idea if we need this from him, and we do have very intense economic relations with Russia, and I think that for Germany, especially for Germany, is quite important. We cannot do without. Uh, that We wish our cars to be put on the Russian market, to give an example. Uh, so that is a give and take. And one thing is clear, the more economic interaction there is, the less chance for a, mili- a military adventure in Ukraine. Even from the point of view of Mr. Putin, this would not make sense. Saber rattling is one thing. Uh, we've been we've seen that during many years. Uh, Saber rattling, but I, I do not believe in a concrete, precise uh, military invention in Ukraine. Uh, and and I, I think that sooner or later, probably with less public uh, noise, the pipeline will be opened. It has to. Our, our reserves are almost empty in Europe, and. Our energy politics haven't been the most uh, the most intelligent. So the thing is, 
the government will have to make a decision. How can we reduce the immediate cost of energy uh, to a household? Uh, I don't talk about the rich people. They wouldn't notice. But I talk about average people and low-income groups. And they notice precisely because it's extremely expensive. Just like in inflation affecting uh, Biden now, there it is a political problem if energy prices go up. And I think that's the same anywhere in the world. All right, we're going to have to stop it there, unfortunately, because we have five minutes to discuss the final subject today, which is the upcoming elections. Very extremely important, arguably. Well, the most important elections coming up in next year in April besides the midterms in the U.S., is the election for the president of France. And uh, Mm -hmm. Emmanuel Macron, the current president, seems to be under a little bit of pressure. So do you want to talk a little bit about uh, Macron Mm -hmm. and his chances? And maybe closer to the time of the election, we'll do a full overview. But just a brief five-minute one for now. Uh, I I see it rather positive for Macron. For one reason, he's uh, he's matured as a politician during the uh, terrible pandemic crisis, and now with the new German government, there's always been a, a race for European influence between France and Germany. Historically, once bitterly opposed, then friends, and the Europe, the quality of Europe is directly uh, proportionate to the quality of the Franco-German relationship. This said. His opponents within France are the traditional far-right Madame Le Pen, a new far-right fanatic Éric Zemmour, who might uh, weaken Madame Le Pen a bit, at least. There are two elections, the one in April and the one in May. The one in May will be decisive because the last two of the election in April will end in the final election in in, in May, and that will determine who becomes the new French president. Right, there are two rounds. There are two rounds. The the top the top two candidates in the first round move on to the second, and then it's a head to head clash. These two rounds are almost a guarantee that the less uh, fanatic personality will be voted for, because in the end, the first round you will have many candidates. You have uh, Zigolin Royal, mayor of Paris, with eco socialist ideas that clearly won't get a much more than 10%. Uh, you have um, a conservative lady, very conservative and astonishingly quite religious because there is a huge no-go limitation between your religious convictions and politics in France, and that's been imposed by law. Laicisme, it's called. Uh, um, and then you have the two right-wing candidates, you have a few more from the left, but this is all more people who will rather won't get more than 10 or 12 percent so the, the, the probably the, the the strongest two ones will end in the second round and that will to my reading be macron and one of the right candidates probably madame le pen uh, and what happens then is that all those voting left or whatever green left even gaullists uh see well macron is uh uh, the lesser evil, I vote for Macron. Uh, and, and that's the way he would probably then remain in power. Uh, the one thing would clearly s- support him, that is he is on the brink of becoming Europe's most dominant political force, given the fact that the new German government appears much weaker compared to the Merkel tradition. Frau Merkel was 
uh, was a, a a character in its in her own right after her many years in power, and Hachette still has to fill out the space if at all possible. In any case, his coalition government is much weaker externally um, than the government, the Merkel coalitions with just one partner, clearly a smaller partner. Uh, so the idea that France will uh, dominate Europe more than Germany is rather promising and for Macron certainly a temptation. And he's a, he's a, he's a very skilled uh, diplomatist, so he will have he will find it easy to communicate that to the Germans without uh, alienating them. If this were true, uh, you would see more French influence in Brussels. And what does that mean practically? What would more French influence mean? More more public debt, okay. to make it clear. <laughs> the French are interested. They have economic difficulties in their own right, and they've never been in favor of a, a very restrictive budgetary discipline. Uh, so they would like to... Europe to borrow more in order to please their voters. Uh, remains to be seen. Uh, the debt load per country now has reached uh, astonishing levels without a collapse in the exterior value of the euro, as have the debts in your country. But the thing is that France has natural allies in this. Italy and Spain, Portugal, to name a few, of course would gladly Jump, join the bandwagon for more, more and more generous possibilities to go into debt. Well, let's what, let's end this conversation now with Corona, and connecting back to what you just said about uh, greater French influence at the EU. Certainly, the pandemic gives people who want more, more debt and more aid from the European Central Bank to poorer countries into all countries, indeed. The pandemic gives them a great deal of political cover to get that done mm -hmm. because the pandemic, uh, everyone knows what it is, and it seems to be a good excuse to increase debt and to uh, also increase spending at the same time. So 2022 will be very fun. There's a lot going on. We have the elections in France. We have the midterm elections in the U.S., and of course there will be a whole number of unforeseen issues that we will be discussing in 2022. So thank you, Dr. Donner, for your insight today. As always, it was fun and insightful. Thanks for having me. And to all of our listeners out there all over the world, thanks for supporting us and listening to us. And I wish everyone a very healthy and happy 2022. And maybe we will indeed be out of this pandemic soon. Take care, everyone. Bye. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.